Imagine if you lived in a sort of parallel universe where the Third Reich had won World War II, you know, like Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Fascist Italy, they won. So the war, you know, it ends in, in 1945, and uh, it, it's been over a little under 10 years now. Um, picture yourself, it's, it's in the mid-50s. Uh, maybe in this alternate reality, there is a Cold War, but instead of the, the U.S. and the USSR, it, it's just like the U.S. and Germany. Uh Somehow, um, everyone has nuclear weapons, uh, but it's reached the same sort of geopolitical stalemate that the actual Cold War did. Now, we all know about the atrocities that the Nazis committed during the Second World War, right? I mean, li literally no one, and, and I mean no one hasn't heard about the Holocaust, Six million Jews were killed, and they were just one of a number of groups that, you know, Hitler believed had to go. So, uh, imagine you are a Jew, and you live in Germany at this time. Again, Germany has won this war, and uh, somehow, you know, for whatever reason, Hitler has decided that you and your family shouldn't die after all um you know maybe you have some sort of a, a skill that this you know victorious nazi regime needs now imagine there are others like you and you live in a certain part of germany that has been set aside for jews the regime has decided to sort of back down on a lot of the repression and you're almost like a, a normal, you know, I guess, quote unquote, German, but not quite. There are some rules. You are not allowed to talk about the Holocaust. It did not happen. If anyone you knew of died at the hands of the, the state, uh, the Nazi regime during the war years, it was because of something they did wrong personally. Um, maybe they collaborated with the Americans. Um, they had plans to overthrow the government. Um, they did die because of, you know, the Nazis' government actions, but uh, somehow it's all justified. Not only that, but uh, in return for this gift of your newfound German citizenship, imagine that you, you know, this, this Jewish person living in this time, um, had to pledge allegiance to Hitler daily in your home, your, your school, your, your place of work. Um, you had to pledge allegiance and, and you know, you, there, there's pictures of him everywhere. If you were caught saying one ill word about Hitler or anybody around him to anyone else, um, well, then that would be it. This deal that you have is off. You would be arrested, and then that's the end of you. And, of course, this deal, it doesn't end with you. It goes for your kids, 
and their kids for decades after even you are dead. Imagine that, you know, over in America and countries that were allied with America, there will be all sorts of intellectuals and students and, and media elites that publicly say that maybe the Holocaust did happen, but it wasn't nearly as bad as it's hyped up by some people. You know, they, they'd say, look, I mean, Hitler was trying to make a better world. I mean, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Now, how would that make you feel? I mean, again, you're a Jew and you've, you've lived through the same Holocaust that, you know, we read about, right? I mean, if you had to live in that kind of environment, you'd probably think that you're going insane. And with good reason. You know what happened. You saw it with your own eyes. You may have actually spent time in Auschwitz. You could smell the smoke coming from the crematorium. What's wrong with all these people? Surely the world has gone mad. Well, the story we will tell today is something sort of like that. You'll see. It is the Holodomor, this time on Savage Continent. back to Savage Continent. So in case you don't know, uh, Holodomor simply means uh, death by hunger in uh, Ukrainian. We don't usually think of hunger as a weapon, but it certainly can be as such. Um, Hitler had a hunger plan, and it was called the Hunger Plan, where millions of Eastern Europeans were to be systematically starved so Germans would have more food, but of course he lost the war, so it never really went into effect. There were other famines in the 20th century which were terrible, I mean, astronomically so. I mean, I'm thinking China uh, during Mao's Great Leap Forward, but um, even then, seldom does leadership get blamed for sort of masterminding it intentionally. Our story today is different. Uh, 16 countries recognize it as a genocide. Uh, the person who invented the term genocide calls it a genocide. But still, um, while there is an overall consensus, uh, not everyone agrees. I don't want to get into the debate. It's, I find it strangely, strangely dehumanizing. Like, uh, these million people over here count because of this, but not those guys. Well, you know, sorry, try again later. Um, we're just going to do the history, and then I will 
sort of let you decide for yourselves. But uh, before we would we get going, I would like to ask of you whether this is your first time or if you've been listening for more than a few episodes, please leave me a review. Uh, it's super easy. Just scroll down uh, where all the show episodes are listed and just hit the star button for me. Preferably the five star. Um, I know it sounds simple, but less than half of 1% of people who listen to the show bother to do it. It only takes a second. Just try it. And then if you have more time, you can write a review. Um, that would be absolutely great. Um, of course, we are on Facebook. Um, just look up Savage Continent. We are on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, Stephen at Savage Continent. Um, of course, please share this or any episode with anyone you think is into history or even what is going on right now in Ukraine. I mean, who is not following that? Um, that's the number one way shows like these get out there. Um, the podcasting space has been taken over by the corporate world in recent years, and it is very hard for an, an unpaid individual content provider like yours truly to get decent exposure. But, you know, if everybody did just a little bit, well, you know, sometimes small things, well, they become very big. So, when we left off, we were discussing the way the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin was uh, implementing their plan, uh, this plan for collectivization. Um, make no mistake about it. Stalin was staking his political future on a really, what, what was a, it was just a giant throw of the dice. Um, if this plan to collectivize all agricultural in the Soviet Union, to industrialize everything, if it were to fail, he would fail. And by the time you get to the early 1930s, um, Stalin had rolled over enough of his opponents to know that if he fell, he would most likely fall hard. Um, when a magnate goes down in the Soviet Union, it is a very, very, very long way down. Um, historian E.H. Carr once stated, quote, More than any other man in history, the life of Joseph Stalin illustrates the thesis that circumstances make the man, end quote. And much later, uh, Stephen Kotkin would repeat that statement and add, quote, utterly, eternally wrong. Like he actually wrote that under. Um, so what does he mean by that? So, I mean, we have talked about Stalin and his interpretation of Marx and Lenin. Um, he was truly an ideologue. Um, he is the kind of person who, once you put him in a historical situation, his personality is what changes things. It's, it's not that he was operating inside of some sort of a system. I mean, he literally created it himself. And that's the way historians increasingly view this period. So, um... Stalin was at a, a conference for uh, school textbooks in the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, I mean, he would spend his time doing things like that. Stalin was a micromanager. And during this conference, 
he would make a, a statement that sort of sums him and, you know, this whole period up perfectly. He'd say, quote, It is ideas that are important, not the individual. End quote. So, I mean, as luck would have it, at the moment that he said this in 1938, Hitler was rolling into Czechoslovakia unchecked. But, you know, that's a story for another day. While that's going on, Stalin is worrying about what the third graders are reading. So, as you can see in that quote, Stalin would trade everything for the victory of socialism. I mean, the idea that you would trade, you know, everything having to do with individual freedom and liberty just for an idea is something that is absolutely alien to us. It's our morality that's just sort of turned on its head. To us, in, in the West at least, the individual is everything. You are allowed to s decide whatever you want for your own life. I mean, other than your own race, I mean, you can pretty much change everything about yourself. But that's not the way that people in these sort of collectivist societies view things. Um, another thing that makes Stalin unique and very different from Lenin even, that is... On the whole, he was very, very rigid in his thinking. Now, remember, Lenin was willing to come to some serious compromises when it came to what he felt socialism should stand for. So, the, the NEP, the, the New Economic Policy, you remember that. Um, it was, if nothing else, a giant compromise with the demon of capitalism. Um, at the time, it's a very smart move. And you kind of remember the, the NEP, the New Economic Policy. The Soviet Union was going down in flames in the early 1920s. And Lenin decides he's got to sort of backtrack. He's got to reintroduce a bunch of sort of capitalistic features. And it really sort of saves the day. You know, sometimes in war, you have to retreat. You need to give ground in order to prevail in the long run. But with Stalin, you'll see none of that. This collectivization program will go horribly wrong. Production quotas will not be met. Not on the assembly line, especially not in agriculture. But Stalin is going to decide to stay the course, whatever the cost. Everything from 1928 on did not have to happen the way it did. Stalin will talk that he'll he'll talk like he's some sort of like agent of history. But the Soviet Union in the late 1920s could have gone a number of different ways. It didn't have to morph into an ultra hard line totalitarian state, but it did because the man in charge and the people around him chose a path and they decided to stick to it. Consequences be damned. So the Soviet Union, you could say, was the prototype totalitarian regime. So... The term totalitarian is, is defined as, uh, quote, relating to a system of government that is centralized and dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. And that's from uh, dictionary.com. And 
that's exactly what we have going on in the Soviet Union at this point. Right there in the late 1920s and early 1930s. You know, again, we have all these preconceived notions of a totalitarian state. But keep in mind, at the time period we're talking about, nothing like this has ever existed. Of course, there have been regimes in which a single man holds absolute power. Imperial Rome comes to mind, ancient Persia, Han China, or, you know, countless other kingdoms and principalities where, like, you know, the buck stops with one man. But in the modern world, no. I mean, there's never been anything like this. I mean, not you know, up to this point. Um, there's this ancient Chinese saying, um, quote, uh, heaven is high and the emperor is far, far away. Now, that seems like a fairly forgettable observation until you really think about it. So in pre-modern times, you know, you might have an absolute ruler, no doubt about that. But the person's ability to project power into the lives of everyday citizens would be very limited. The ruler of an empire was more of a, a concept to the average person than an actual living, breathing human being. He might want things, but his power had to flow through all of these different channels that ultimately diluted that same power. Um, you would feel that power through governors or lords or satraps or, or their vassals. I mean, policies would take time. I mean, you know, even in Russia, I mean, the word of a czar might take over a year to reach far-flung corners of the empire. Now, however, in this new Soviet state, the will of the man in charge could be instantly projected everywhere and done so, I mean, literally in seconds. When he wants arrests done, they will happen that very night. When lists of enemies to be knocked off or, you know, drawn up, everyone involved would know within hours. Even the lowliest citizen would see his airbrushed image. They could read his actual speeches in, in state-run newspapers the morning after they occurred. Or, or now, they could actually even hear his voice. Don't underestimate that. You know, hearing the word of a ruler in real time is something that, you know, historically is just, that's new. Stalin was a living presence in the life of every man, woman, and child in this world, this totalitarian Soviet regime. So, as far as a totalitarian state goes, you know, Stalin is the blueprint. He, he's the prototype. Every dictator that followed would be modeled after him. And Stalin, suspicious as he was, truly believed that his was a state threatened by the outside world. In the late 1920s, the only state that the Soviet Union could call an ally would be Mongolia. Good luck with that. Their brand, the Soviet brand of socialism, was still abhorrent to just about every other nation on Earth. As we've seen, the Soviets did not have a monopoly on the concept of socialism. Um, Lenin was but one of many that interpreted Marx and Engels, and, and Stalin had to, well, he had his own take on Lenin. 
Um, nonetheless, the Soviet Union under Stalin would attempt to fashion itself into the only true socialist state that made enemies of everyone else. He could have developed friendly relations with the Western democracies, but he chose not to. Instead, they were deemed as imperialist, bourgeois, or fascist, or social fascist. He wanted to be prepared for war on a grand scale. Now, that would be a war of defense or a war of offense. He didn't know. Um, historians today aren't in agreement of, you know, what Stalin was, was thinking or what he really wanted in the long term. But they do agree that he believed a war would come and the Soviet Union needed to be prepared. But it would be a modern war, a war fought on the assembly line more than anywhere else. An agrarian Soviet Union would never prevail. It had to industrialize fast. Peasants would have to become factory workers. What people did remain on the land would have to be productive for two reasons. For one, there would be less of them to go around. And then secondly, the Soviet Union would need foreign capital and expertise for this industrialization to sort of get off the ground. Unfortunately, all the Soviet Union really had to sell at this point was grain. So a lot of pressure would be on the agricultural space. So, you know, what to do? Um, make the farms larger and more efficient. Make proletarians out of the farmers. There would be a smaller number of, you know, what would we call collective farms. But these farms would be more efficient. Much, much more efficient. They'd have modern equipment. No more horse-drawn plows. Nope. We're in the 20th century now, folks. I mean, surely this plan would go off like gangbusters, right? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Some people might need a little bit of persuasion. Um, Stephen Kotkin writes, uh, quote, When the Russian scientist Ivan Pavlov fed a dog, it salivated, and the scientist rang a bell. After many repetitions, the scientist stopped the feeding but continued the ringing, and the animal salivated anyway. Pavlov had conditioned the dog to respond to the bell as if the sound were the smell and taste of food. The Soviet populace, too, had been conditioned. The bell sounded by the regime was capitalist encirclement, and the people's reflexive response was the fear of foreign invasion and war. End quote. So, with this end in mind, the plan to subjugate the peasantry would sort of have to go forward. Um, it could not wait. And if a level of ruthlessness were required, then sort of so be it. So, we talked about this whole idea of behavioral psychology that the Soviets were just absolutely obsessed with. You know, you have reinforcers and punishers, and they will be employed on a grand scale. So in case you forgot your uh, high school psychology, a reinforcer is when you add something good, a positive stimulus, or, or you take away something bad, and a punisher is just the opposite of that. Um, reinforcers are sort of a problem in a socialist state. You know, it's, it's you can't really give people rewards, especially monetary ones, because it's socialist. So 
that leaves punishers introducing negative stimuli and withdrawing positive ones. So Stalin would start by removing those peasants that would be likely to resist. Um, this would be, I guess you could call it a positive punishment. So there would be a purge of the intelligentsia. Uh, it was very public. There were show trials. Um, the fiction of elaborate subversion, conspiracy theories, and everything like that, you know, ties made to international fascism were laid out in the open. Um, and then, of course, this is just the opening round. There'd be another 10 years of this constant purge of, you know, the party. And then... Stalin would sort of move to the common people, really for the first time in a systematic way in the history of the Soviet Union. And it would start with what he considered to be the well-off peasants, the kulaks. They would get the boot. So when we left off, this sort of plan of de-kulakizing the peasantry was in full force. The wealthiest, most capable individuals in the agricultural space were written off as class enemies and either killed outright or exiled to the, the most remote regions of the Soviet Union. Now, this policy hit Ukraine the hardest. Um, a quick aside about the Soviets and uh, the idea of race first. Um, as we have seen, they do not see race in the same way that the Nazis do. This sort of uh, hypercharged theory of Darwinian evolu evolution that the um, the National Socialists in Germany had. Um, the Soviets don't even like the idea of evolution. Um, they believe that people can can be conditioned into the perfect uh, what they would call the the perfect Soviet man. Um, Still, they would be considered racist by any contemporary standard. Um, the Soviet Union was comprised of something like a hundred nationalities, and each and every one of them was considered to be a potential threat. Uh, Simon Sebag uh, Montefiore writes, quote, He, and he's talking about Stalin here, was never a biological racist like the Nazis. However, he disliked any nationality that threatened loyalty to the multinational USSR. He embraced the Russian people, not because he rejected his own Georgian origins, but for precisely the same reason. The Russians were the foundations and cement of the Soviet Union. End quote. So all of these nationalities, and you could say every hundred of them, um, at this moment are considered to be a threat to the Soviet Union. And of all the nationalities in the Soviet Union... Stalin's going to consider Ukraine to be the biggest threat. Um, it needed to be eliminated. I mean, all of this makes sense. I mean, Ukrainians don't speak, they don't speak Russian for the most part. They don't speak the language. Um, they control a fertile territory that is vital to feeding the Soviet Union. They are in a borderland area that abuts potentially hostile states like Poland, Austria, Romania or any of the other sort of hostile Western powers. And we'll get into this later. But what Stalin will do here doesn't really need to be seen as wanton killing. It has a purpose. But then it can't be said that he didn't know what was happening or he couldn't have 
prevented what is going to be one of the greatest disasters in the history of human civilization. Uh, historian Robert Conquest writes, quote, Dequilicization meant the killing or deportation to the Arctic with their families of millions of peasants. In principle, the better off, in practice, the most influential and most recalcitrant to the party's plans. Collectivization meant the effective abolition of private property and land and the concentration of the remaining peasantry in collective farms under party control. These two measures resulted in millions of deaths among the deportees in particular, but also among the unreported areas such as Kazakhstan. Then, in 1932-3, came what may be described as a terror famine inflicted on the collectivized peasants of the Ukraine and the largely Ukrainian Kuban, together with the Don and Volga areas, by the methods of setting for them quotas far above the possible, removing every handful of food and preventing help from the outside, even from other areas of the USSR, from reaching the starving. This action, even more destructive of life than those of 1929 to 32, was accompanied by a wide-ranging attack on all Ukrainian cultural and intellectual censures and leaders, and on the Ukrainian churches. The supposed contumaciousness of the Ukrainian peasants and not surrendering grain they did not have was explicitly blamed on nationalism, all of which was in accord with Stalin's dictum that the national problem was in essence a peasant problem. The Ukrainian peasant thus suffered a double guise as a peasant and as Ukrainian. End quote. Historian Norman Davies will write, quote, The terror famine of 1932-3 was a dual-purpose byproduct of collectivization designed to suppress Ukrainian nationalism and the most important concentration of prosperous peasants at one throw. End quote. So, as we've seen, a purge began among Ukrainian intellectuals that would continue on and off until the Great Purge of uh, 1937-38. to 38. But the big blow to Ukraine is going to begin in late 1929 and into 1930. Um, this, of course, would be the collectivization of the Ukrainian peasantry. Now, the word peasant doesn't mean a lot to us today. In uh, North America, we've never had a class of people that could realistically be called peasants. Uh, when you think of the term peasant, it's uh, easy to come up with images of the Middle Ages with the kings and and lords and, and knights and, and all that. Um, it may seem stereotypical, but the image is not too far removed from reality. I mean, even in this time period. So peasants are closely related to serfs, and uh, surely your you know your middle school history class is coming back to you now. Um, serfs are, are tied to the land by law. Now, they have more rights than, you know, the, the sort of chattel slaves you might see, you know, in, in the, the American South or, or the Caribbean or South America and, you know, the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, but not that much. Um, now, a peasant you might consider to be be sort of like a serf, but a peasant doesn't necessarily have the, the working feudal arrangement with a lord that the serf would have. Um, he's sort of a low-level agricultural worker that in a de facto or even de jure sense is still sort of tied to the land. 
So since the 1500s, the common people of the Russian Empire were serfs for the most part. Um, they were at the mercy of feudal aristocrats. So in 1861, this is all going to change. So the, the serfs are sort of liberated, technically at least, but what they don't get is land ownership. Um, again, we covered this in the last episode, but um, in this new Soviet Union, people like this just can't be allowed to exist in their present form, not in the this new sort of proletarian society that the Soviets have in mind. So as you can imagine, these peasants um, had a very traditional lifestyle and they were not too keen on abandoning it in favor of what they would call a second serfdom. It's like being enslaved a second time. Um, most of us would have no conception of what it'd be like to live in one place for your entire life and, and, and doing the same thing. And for generations and generations, you know, everything is the same. The average American spends only 16 years living in one house before moving. And then the higher up you get in the income chain, the moving happens more often. You know, if you're making six figures, you're moving something like every eight years. Um, I think only 8% of the population lives in the same house for like 20 or 30 years. It's crazy. So... Despite all that, I mean, imagine like everyone in your town or your county or your state having to move at one time into like a bunch of collective housing projects. And those housing projects are connected with a giant factory. That would be chaos. That would be awful. Um, you can imagine most of us would be freaking out. But in these traditional villages where the government really had tried, well, they hadn't really done much of anything, you know, and their lives had not really been altered for centuries. I mean, this must have been bedlam. So Stalin would say, quote, radical change has taken place in the development of our agriculture from small, backward individual farming to large scale, advanced collective agricultural to cultivation of the land in common. The new and decisive feature of the peasant collective farm movement is that the peasants are joining the collective farms, not in separate groups, as was formerly the case, but in whole villages, whole regions, whole districts, and even whole provinces, end quote. Now, when you take a whole society and then you turn everyone's world upside down, um, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of pushback. There's going to be some rebellion. Um, open rebellion broke out um, in Ukraine and at all the places where collectivization was tried, and uh, it happened very quickly. One of the first impositions the government made was the requisition of livestock. Often peasants would refuse to hand in their animals. Again, you know, if, if you are a peasant and you live on a farm, I mean, your animals are everything. Um, very often, instead of giving them away to these new collective farms, they would kill their animals outright. Anne Applebaum, in her 
I guess you'd call it a seminal work on this uh, period, would write in a red famine, quote, Outright refusal was often followed by immediate action. Ordered to hand over their livestock to collective farms that they did not trust, peasants began to slaughter cows, pigs, sheep, and even horses. They ate the meat, salted it, sold it, or concealed it. Anything to prevent the collective farms from getting hold of it. All across the Soviet Union, in all the rural districts, slaughterhouses suddenly began working overtime. Mikhail Shokolov penned a famous fictional portrait of a livestock bloodbath. Quote, Hardly had darkness fallen when the brief and stifled bleeding of sheep, the moral stream of a pig, or bellowing of a calf would be heard, piercing the silence. Not only those who joined the collective farm, but individual farmers also slaughtered. They killed oxen, sheep, pigs, even cows. They slaughtered animals they kept for breeding. The dogs began to drag entrails and guts about the village. The cellars and granaries were filled with meat. Kill. It's not ours now. Kill. They take it for the meat collection tax if you don't. Kill. For you won't taste meat in the collective farm. End quote. So this is going to end up being disastrous. Uh, check it out. Between 1928 and 1932, half the cattle and horses in the Soviet Union perished. The number of pigs went from 26 to 12 million. Sheep and goats went from 146 million to 50 million. Um, the authorities, of course, saw that this was an act of sabotage against the state, and they deemed the participants to be kulaks, um, that people would be deported or forced to endure, endure cruel punishments. Um, one guy is going to kill his cow, and then he'll have to walk through his village with the head of the cow tied around his neck. Um, people started talking about a second serfdom. Uh, this is Applebaum again. Quote, In the Russian central Black Earth District, OGPU sources heard one peasant declare, The communists deceived us in the revolution. All the land was given out to work for free. Now they take the last cow. In the middle Volga province, another said, They said to me, Revolution! I didn't understand, but now I understand that such a revolution means to take everything from the peasants and leave them hungry and naked. In Ukraine, a peasant declared, They push us onto collective farms so that we will be eternal slaves. Many decades later, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, and the grandson of Kulaks described the collective farms as serfdom in order for the memory of collective farms as a second serfdom to have such a long life, it must have been deeply rooted, end quote. So often this would sort of morph into a kind of religious mania. Um, Timothy Snyder in his book, The Bloodlands, writes, quote, The rural societies of Soviet Ukraine were still for the most part religious societies. Many of the young and ambitious, those swayed by official communist atheism, had left for the big Ukrainian cities, or for Moscow or Leningrad. Though their Orthodox Church had been suppressed by the atheist communist regime, the peasants were still Christian believers, and many understood the contract with the collective farm as a pact with the devil. Some believed that Satan had come to earth in human form as a party activist, his collective farm register, a book of hell, promising torment and damnation. The new machine tractor stations looked like the outposts of Gehenna, some Polish peasants in Ukraine, Roman Catholics, 
also saw collectivization in apocalyptic terms. One Paul explained to his son why they would not join the collective farm. I do not want to sell my soul to the devil. Understanding this religiosity, party activists propagated what they called Stalin's first commandment. The collective farm supplies the state and only then the people. As the peasants would have known, the first commandment from in its biblical form reads, Thou shalt have no other god before me. End quote. So, by the middle of 1930, it's clear that forced collectivization is pretty roundly rejected by the Ukrainian peasantry as it was elsewhere in the Soviet Union. The number of attacks on state agents skyrocketed. You'll have a five-day period in February where there are 18,000 arrests. The jails are overflowing, and, and there's no sign of it stopping. Moreover, if the policy failed, it could even prove to be a geopolitical liability. This is Snyder again, quote, All was not going as planned. Collectivization, which was supposed to secure the Soviet order, seemed instead to destabilize the borderlands. In Soviet Asia, as in Soviet Europe, a five-year plan that was supposed to bring socialism had brought instead enormous suffering, and a state that was supposed to represent justice responded with very traditional security measures. Soviet Poles were deported from western border zones, and the border guard was strengthened everywhere. The world revolution would have to take place behind closed borders, and Stalin would have to take steps to protect what he called socialism in one country. Stalin had to delay foreign adversaries and rethink domestic plans. He asked Soviet diplomats to initiate discussions with Poland and Japan on non-aggression pacts. He saw to it that the Red Army was ordered to full battle readiness in the Western Soviet Union. Most tellingly, Stalin suspended collectivization in an article dated the 2nd of March, 1930, under the brilliant title, Dizzy with Success, Stalin maintained that the problem with collectivization was that it had been implemented with just a little too much enthusiasm, end quote. And I love the title of this speech, uh, Dizzy with Success. Such spin, such chutzpah. I mean, half the country is in open rebellion. And, oh my, uh, we've been doing so well, guys. It's, it's, going, it's going so well that we can't even handle ourselves. Stalin never mentioned all the atrocities, the murders, the beatings, children thrown outside without clothes. You know, eh, folks just got a little too carried away. Eh, mistakes were made. <laughs> And and who made those mistakes? Well, I mean, uh, not Stalin, of course. It was the minions in his party. Uh, Simon Sebag, Monte Fiore, writes, quote, Stalin had lost control. The masterful tactician bowed before the magnates and agreed to retreat with resentful prudence. On the 2nd of March, he wrote his famous article, Dizzy with Success, in which he claimed success and blamed local officials for his own mistakes, which relieved the pressure in the villages, end quote. So this article is going to get read aloud in villages all over the Soviet Union, and the effect was not what the party had intended. Uh, this is sort of what happens in, in one village in Ukraine when um, the article sort of gets read to a crowd. Um, 
In Myrondalat's village, as in many villages, a local activist read Dizzy with Success article aloud to the villagers as he was explaining that mistakes had been made, that errors had been committed, and that the party's members had made grave miscalculations. The assembled crowd was deathly still. Then the activist added his own view, that the Jews within the party were at fault, not the party itself. This explanation neatly exempted himself and his comrades from blame. What happened next, wrote Dolat, was a spontaneous riot. Away with you, one man shouted. We've had enough of you, cried another. We've been duped. Let's get our horses and cows out of that stinking collective farm before it's too late. In a disorganized wave, the villagers ran to get their livestock, tripping over one another in the dark. About 20 peasants were shot in the subsequent chaos. In the days that followed, similar riots broke out across the Soviet Union, and in a few places they acquired new layers of sophistication. The first signs of organized opposition that had so worried Baltatsky in January became by March, April, and May a real movement. The riots became quickly organized, sometimes very well organized. They acquired a much more obvious political character. Men and women across the USSR, but especially and most numerously from Ukraine, attacked, beat, and murdered activists in the spring of 1930. They organized raids on warehouses and grain storage containers. They broke locks, stole grain and other food, and distributed around the villages. They set fire to collective and Soviet property. They attacked collaborators in one village... Those who were not satisfied with the regime burnt down the houses of collective farm activists. The activists who had donned a priest vestments and stomped on the iconostasis was found dead in a ditch the following day. End quote. So this dizzy with success speech was meant to sort of calm a volatile situation. It was supposed to be what we might call negative reinforcement, taking away an adverse stimulus to elicit a desired behavior. But it just proved to everyone that the regime was incompetent, and worse yet, impotent. There were 13,794 incidents of terror and 13,754 mass protests, and the majority of this activity would be in Ukraine. The secret police would increasingly find evidence of Ukrainian chauvinists or Petluriite circles, and um, everyone had links to the fascist West. Um, There would be more public trials, more saboteurs, more wreckers. So now Stalin is going to implement his new plan. Um, Maybe the peasants wouldn't allow themselves to be forced onto a collective farm. Fair enough. But what if we made it impossible for them not to join? What if we make the collective farm the only place where they can even survive? So orders are going to go out to requisition the seed grain from all peasants that did not join these new collective farms. Now, if you aren't a farmer, and, well, you know, I'm not a farmer, um... This might not mean much to you, but your seed grain is that little bit of grain that you keep after every harvest that you use in order to plant the next harvest. Uh, You take away that and, well, I mean, you know, use your imagination. Peasants were heard to say, 
all the bread will be taken out of Soviet Ukraine and Ukraine will be left with nothing. You know, another is going to say they will take our last grain and leave us peasants starving. Although the kulaks had been, you know, largely liquidated, anyone who refused would face dire consequences. And because everyone still around sort of saw what happened to those people that were labeled as kulaks, I mean, everybody knew what would be coming. Um, There would be brigades that would go from village to village, taking away uh, the possibility of independence for the farmers. I mean, uh, many protested violently. Um, archival reports even have mobs of angry peasants shouting things like, um, we don't want leaders that rob peasants or even, you know, down with the communists. Uh, in thir- uh, 343 Ukrainian villages, peasants elected their own uh, starostas or village councils that would serve as uh, independent governments that were explicitly anti-communist. Um Many at that point would flee to the West. Uh, Polish propaganda would pick up on this. Stalin would be publicly denounced as a, a hunger czar. Of course, in the mind of the regime, this only solidified the fact that they were counter-revolutionaries, anti-Soviet, Petluriites, you know, the, the kind of things that we've been hearing all along. Um, in Moscow, the Politburo decided to ratchet up the collectivization goals. Instead of 70% of households in collective farms, they wanted 80% collectivized by December 1931. Uh, Peasants could remain on their own land. Again, it's like they're not being forced on the collective farms. I mean, explicitly, but... If they did want to stay where they were, they'd have to pay these taxes. And these new taxes would be paid in kind, which means that, you know, it's not a money tax, but it would be, you know, part of your crop. And often the taxes that would be levied would be much more than these farmers had produced in total in the best of years. So, you know, reluctantly, a lot of people are going to either flee to the cities or they are going to just, you know, kind of toss in the towel and then join these collective farms. After all, uh, Applebaum writes, quote, threatened by violence and afraid of hunger, hundreds of thousands of peasants finally relinquished their land, animals and machines to the collective farms. But just because They had been forced to move. They did not become enthusiastic collective farmers overnight. The fruits of their labor no longer belonged to them. The grain that they sowed and harvested was now requisitioned by the authorities. Collectivization also meant that peasants had lost the ability to make decisions about their lives. Like the serfs of old, they were forced to accept a special legal status, including controls on their movement. All collective farmers, Kokoshniks, would eventually need to seek permission to work outside the village. Instead of deciding when to reap, sow, and sell, Kokoshniks had to follow decisions made by the local representatives of Soviet power. They did not earn regular salaries, but were paid churodny, or day wages, which often meant payment in kind, grain, potatoes, or other products, rather than cash. 
they lost the ability to govern themselves too, and collective farm bosses and their entourages supplanted the traditional village councils, end quote. So, okay then, uh, game over. Stalin won, uh, peasants zero. Well, so, not so fast. Uh, it quickly became apparent that these new collective farms were not all Stalin had anticipated. Uh, the modern equipment was in short supply, or often it didn't work. Even if these people did know how to maintain or even operate it. Um, and of course, you have the problem that people have no more incentive to work hard. Uh, people will steal from collectives. Um, they'll neglect equipment. Um, it, you know, it's sort of, a, I, what would you call it? It's like a collective action dilemma. You know, when everybody owns something, then really nobody owns it and nobody cares. Um, Still, uh, Stalin was convinced that this scheme would sort of pay off. Um, he's actually going to up the export quota for 1931. I mean, despite all the chaos. Um, see, the thing is that the 1930 harvest um, really wasn't that bad. Um, the weather that year had been pretty good. But there is a problem. Um the stock market crash of 1929 had brought a, a global slump in grain prices. Um, the Soviet Union is going to have to export more to make the same amount of money. Remember, the Soviet Union doesn't have a lot of hard currency. It's trying to industrialize. You know, the only way we can get this is just to sort of export more grain. So Stalin's going to write in August of 1930, quote, if we don't export 130 to 150 million poods, and that's about uh, 2.1 to 2.4 million tons, um, our currency situation may become desperate. Once again, we must force the export of grain with all of our strength, end quote. So, um, the 1930 harvest is going to happen, and then it sort of goes slower than expected. Uh, targets are going to be missed. Um, you know, the collective farms are just not going to be as efficient as Stalin really hoped they would be. Applebaum writes, quote, Everybody understood at some level that collectivization was itself the source of the new shortages. Stalin himself had received reports explaining exactly what was wrong with the collective farms, describing their inefficiency in great detail. One official from the central Black Earth province even wrote to him, a daring defense of private property. How to explain this enormous drop in collective farm production? It's impossible to explain it except to say that the material interest and responsibility for the losses and for the low quality of work don't affect each individual collective farmer directly. The missing feeling of responsibility destroyed by collectivization would plague Soviet agriculture and indeed Soviet industry as long as it existed. But although it was already clear as early as 1931, it was not possible to question the policy because it was already too closely associated with Stalin himself, end quote. And as you might imagine, nothing can be the fault of Stalin. Well, that leaves the party officials in the grain-growing areas and then finally the people doing the actual farming to blame. Um, 
you know, who, who's going to get blamed for this screw-up? I, I wonder. Um, so, you know, we're just going to get more denunciation, more show trials of higher-ups. Um, one was of a Ukrainian agronomist named uh, Stepan Chernyovsky. Uh, he and a group of associates were accused of deliberately sabotaging the harvest and spreading counter-revolutionary ideas in the countryside. Um, still, once you get into 1931, it's, it's clear that nothing seems to be working. At that point, the regime starts to really put the screws on these collective farms that aren't meeting expectations. Uh, from here on out, any farm that didn't meet its grain quota would have to repay outstanding loans, return the tractors or farm equipment that had been leased from the state. I mean, imagine that, you know, they take away your farm, they take away everything, they throw you on a collective farm, and then they make you, <laughs> they're loaning you the equipment that you have to, I mean, honestly, it, it's like uh, the slaves actually have to borrow <laughs> the stuff they need to like farm the master's crops. I mean, it's insane, but you know, I mean, that's that's how it worked. Um, so uh, these peasants would have to surrender any money they had, um, even if the money was for seeds for the next year's crop. There's just no mercy. Farms that didn't produce were denounced as being agents of kulaks um, and the whole other sort of constellation of internal enemies that had to be contended with. So, sure enough, um, the harvest would come in short in 1931, and the uh, the punishment, this, uh, you know, in a psychological sense, the removal of a, a stimulus, um, it would begin. So, brigades are going to go through the countryside and just took whatever they pleased. They would go into houses of guilty collective farmers and just, just take everything. I mean, even the food that the family planned on consuming for themselves, um, they they broke in like while the peasants were actually like preparing a meal. Um, quote, uh, the searches are usually conducted at night and they search fiercely, deadly seriously. There is a village on the border with Romania where not a single house has not had its stove destroyed. The authorities do as follows. They send the so-called brigades, which come to a man or a farmer and conduct a search so thorough that they even look through the ground with sharp metal hooks, through the walls with matches, and in the garden, in the straw roof. And if they find even half a pood, they take it away on the horse wagon. This passes for life here. Dear Brother Ignasi, if it is possible, I ask you to send me a package, as it is very needed. There is nothing to eat, and one must eat. And of course, this is a letter from, you know, a farmer in the Ukraine sort of describing what's going on. So as people get hungrier and hungrier, they begin killing whatever livestock they had, um, whatever hadn't been taken already in this, this drive for collectivization. So first they're going to kill the, the cows, the pigs, or the goats, and anything like that. Then they'll start eating horses. Uh, finally, family pets like dogs and cats begin disappearing. So people are actually going to start appealing to Stalin himself. One of these letters will say, quote, Dear Stalin, please answer me. 
Why are the collective farmers on the collective farms swelling with hunger and eating dead horses? I got a holiday and went to Zinoviski district where I saw for myself how people are eating horses, end quote. And there are thousands of these letters in the archives. I mean, Stalin would read these. He would even write notes in the margins. People would write to Stalin like like kids write to Santa Claus. And um, sometimes he would respond. Um, and here is where all of this starts getting pretty irrational if you're the Politburo or even the, the local party elite. It was being openly reported in the spring of 1932 that a third of the fields in Ukraine weren't even being planted at all. The people were already so exhausted by hunger to do the work that they needed to to grow, you know, food for themselves or let alone what the state needed. Um, even Ukrainian communists are beginning to send these sort of plaintive letters to Moscow asking for the regime to let up on these draconian quotas, uh, quote, the ensuing arguments within the Moscow leadership, the Ukrainian Communist Party in Kharkiv, and between Moscow and Kharkiv, were murky and guarded, even confusing and contradictory. The potential for widespread famine was now well understood on all sides. But again, Stalin's personal responsibility for the collectivization policy, he had conceived and argued for it, backed and stood by it, was perfectly well understood too. To oppose it openly, let alone imply that it had somehow failed, sounded like a criticism of the leader himself. Everyone knew that the provision of food aid to Ukraine was a tacit admission of Stalin's failure. Yet, if the Ukrainian peasants were not spared their grain and encouraged to sow their crops, everyone also knew that catastrophe would follow. End quote. So, despite all sorts of pressure, um, Stalin is just going to stick to this hard line. I mean, not only that, but he's going to openly refuse outside help to come into the areas afflicted by this this famine. Enough people had fled into Western Europe to prompt organizations like the International Red Cross to collect funds and, and food, but it was all bluntly refused by the state. Things were falling apart, but there was no retreat. Timothy Snyder writes, quote, In early 1932, people asked for help. Ukrainian communists requested that their superiors in the Ukrainian party ask Stalin to call in the Red Cross. Members of collective farms tried writing letters to state and party authorities. One of these, after several paragraphs of formal administrative prose, closed with the plaintive, Give us bread, give us bread, give us bread. Ukrainian party members bypassed Kosior and wrote directly to Stalin, taking an angry tone. How can we construct the socialist economy when we are all doomed to death by hunger? The threat of mass starvation was utterly clear to the Soviet Ukrainian authorities, and it became so to Stalin. Party activists and secret police officers filed countless reports of death by starvation. In June 1932, the head of the party in the Kharkiv region wrote to Kosior that starvation had been reported in every single district of his region. Kosior received a letter from a member of the Young Communists dated the 18th of June, 1932, with a graphic description that was probably by then all too familiar. Collective farm members go into the fields and disappear. After a few days, their corpses are found entirely without emotion, as though this were normal, buried in graves. The next day, one can 
already find the body of someone who had just been digging graves for others. That same day, in 18th of June, 1932, Stalin himself admitted privately that there was famine in Soviet Ukraine. The previous day, the Ukrainian party leadership had requested food aid. He did not grant it. His response was that all the grain in Soviet Ukraine must be collected as planned. He and Kaganovich agreed that it is imperative to export without fail immediately. End quote. Stalin would say in another letter that Ukrainian officials were begging for bread from Moscow and, quote, feigning sainthood, and that Ukraine has been given more than enough. Um, so, as the situation increasingly became critical in the summer of 1932, and the evidence for starvation is impossible to miss for anybody, I mean, especially for someone as obsessive and prone to micromanagement as Stalin, you're going to get um, this sort of, uh, you know, it, it's your own fault approach. Um, this approach is followed even when it's clear that less grain on the net will be harvested if it's followed. So this is where the genocide argument starts to take shape. At this point, the crisis could have been largely averted. But the grain quotas, although they would be slightly reduced, are going to just remain in place. Not only that, but if you were desperate enough to sneak into a field just to grab some grain for yourself, you know, just a handful for you or your family, um, as increasingly was the case, you know, guess what? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? Um, you'll be charged. Uh, Article 58, anti-Soviet agitation. Um this is a political crime. I mean, the worst kind of crime, heresy. And how are heretics punished? Well, by death, of course. Or in this case, best case scenario, 10 years in the gulag just for grabbing a handful of, you know, grain. I mean, it's kind of hard to visualize, but that's what was going on. Um, so by 1933, um, the death rate in the Soviet, you know, prison camp system is going to skyrocket. Um, it's going to be 15% per year of the, the gulag prisoners are going to die. So if you are sent to the gulag for a 10-year sentence, I mean, guess what? You know, do the math. Stalin is going to write to one of his magnates at this time, quote, crime must be punished with 10 years or capital punishment. There should be no amnesty. Without these and similar draconian socialist measures, it is impossible to establish new social discipline. And without such discipline, it is impossible to strengthen and defend our new order, end quote. Uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore writes, quote, On the 14th of July, he put pen to paper ordering Molotov and Kaganovich in Moscow to create a draconian law to shoot hungry peasants who even stole husks of grain. They drew up the notorious decree against misappropriation of socialist property with grievous punishments based on the text of your letter. On the 7th of August, this became law. Stalin was now in a state of nervous panic, writing to Kaganovich, if we don't make an effort now to improve the situation in Ukraine, we may lose Ukraine, end quote. 
but still he will tighten the screws. There are going to be these special troikas, those uh, infamous three-man tribunals that have become synonymous with the revolutionary terror during the Civil War a decade earlier. But they're not just going to go after common collective farm workers or even whatever uncollectivized village peasants remained. No, they went after communist collective farm managers and party activists that were responsible for what was called sabotage. In November 1932 alone, 1,623 Kolkhoz managers were arrested. Over 30,000 more people would be deported from Ukraine by year's end. Stalin would say that the famine was, a, a, quote, a fairy tale, and he sort of promulgated this theory that kind of put everything together. It went sort of like this. Resistance to socialism was increasing because of the successes of socialism. You know, they're becoming obvious to everyone. So, as this resistance becomes stronger, so much should the ferocity with which it is fought. The enemies are craftier than they had been before, and you could never really lose vigilance. Snyder writes, quote, Stalin had developed an interesting new theory that resistance to socialism increases as its successes mount because its foes resist with greater desperation as they contemplate their final defeat. Thus, any problem in the Soviet Union could be defined as an example of enemy action, and enemy action could be defined as evidence of progress. Resistance to his policies in Soviet Ukraine, Stalin argued, was of, sp of special sort perhaps not visible to the imperceptive observer. Opposition, uh, opposition was no longer open for the enemies of socialism were now quiet or even holy. The kulaks of today, he said, were gentle people, kind, almost saintly. People who appeared to be innocent were to be seen as guilty. A peasant slowly dying of hunger was, despite appearances, a saboteur working for the capitalist powers in their campaign to discredit the Soviet Union. Starvation was resistance, and resistance was a sign that the victory of socialism was just around the corner. These were not merely Stalin's musings in Moscow. This was the ideological line enforced by Molotov and Kaganogich as they traveled through regions of mass death in late 1932. End quote. So, for political reasons, he again refused any sort of help from the outside world. He refused to send aid. And it's this point at the end of 1932 that what is happening really slips into a true genocide. Quote, In the waning weeks of 1932, facing no external security threat, no challenge from within, with no conceivable justification except to prove the inevitability of his rule, Stalin chose to kill millions of people in Soviet Ukraine. He shifted to a position of pure malice, where the Ukrainian peasant was somehow the aggressor, and he, Stalin, the victim. Hunger was a form of aggression for Kaganovich in a class struggle, for Stalin in a Ukrainian national struggle, against which starvation was the only defense. Stalin deemed determined to display his dominance over the Ukrainian peasantry, and seemed even to enjoy the depths of suffering that such a posture would require, end quote. So at this point, there are going to be a number of new laws that are going to come into place, and they're going to come thick, and they are going to come fast. So, on the 18th of November, um, 
there's a law that's going to be passed that says uh, Ukrainian peasants are going to be forced to return advances in grain that they had earned by actually meeting their quotas. And not a lot of people did that. So even if these people had played by the rules and done their jobs, you know, bye-bye food. Um, 20th of November, peasants that had actually met those targets would now have to pay a special meat tax and a grain quota on top of that. So this is going to take away any remaining livestock that could be eaten, as well as place an impossible grain tax that they couldn't really meet to begin with. And uh, this will actually apply to horses that might be used for plowing. Um, if they already had taken back your tractor um, and you were depending on the horse to pull the plow, you know, you're screwed that way too. On the 28th of November, there would be uh, something called a black list. Um, from here on out, if a collective farm fails to meet the grain quota for a given month, they would be required to surrender, and just wait for it, 15 times that amount immediately, which, I mean, of course, is impossible. Um, moreover, no one was allowed to trade with a farm or a village that had been blacklisted. No one was even allowed to go in and help them for free. They became what were called zones of death for everyone inside. No blacklisted village would ever meet this quota. I mean, if you get blacklisted, it's game over. 5th of December, anyone who failed to participate in the grain collection for moral reasons or otherwise was deemed, by definition, uh, a traitor to the state and to be punished under Article 58. Um, of course, you know, connections were with fascism were sort of always stressed. Um, 21st of December, new requisition targets were proclaimed for 1933. Uh, these targets were to be met uh, 100%. Uh, local party leaders would be held personally responsible for any shortcoming. Uh, 22nd of January, 1933, um, convinced that refugees are fleeing starvation in Ukraine, um, not because they're hungry, but instead they were engaged in some sort of counter-revolutionary plot with Polish assistance, Stalin is going to close off Ukraine from the outside world. Um, not just from other countries, mind you, but from the rest of the Soviet Union. There would be an internal passport system that would be rigorously enforced Ukraine would become a vast death camp, sort of a, a giant Auschwitz in the service of the Soviet motherland. By February 1933, over 190,000 peasants were arrested. Uh, many of them probably wished at this point they could go to the Gulag, but no. Instead, they're sent to a place that would be far worse, their own homes. I mean, clearly, this is punishment. This is a withdrawal of a stimulus to elicit a proper response. Um, you would have to be an imbecile not to see what is going on here. And Stalin was not a complete idiot. Um, moreover, his own children, I mean, his daughter noticed what was going on and talked about it to her friends. Um, and also her mother. Um, and then 
she would go to her own father, to Stalin, and, 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 and talk about what people are saying. This would put stress on his already tense family situation, especially the situation that he had with his wife, Nadia. Montefiore uh, writes, quote, The famine fed tensions in Stalin's marriage when little Kira Aleluyeva visited her uncle Redden's GPU chief in Kharkov, she opened the blinds of her special train and saw to her amazement starving people with swollen bellies begging to the train for food and starving dogs running alongside. Kira told her mother, Zenia, who fiercely informed Stalin, don't pay any attention, he replied. She's a child and makes things up. In the last year of Stalin's marriage, we find fragments of both happiness and misery. In February of 1932 is Lana's birthday. She starred in a play for her parents at the Politburo. The two boys, Vasya and Artyan, recited verses. At home, Stalin alternated between absentee bully and Hector husband. Nadia had in the past snitched on deserters at the academy. In those months, it's hard to tell if she was denouncing enemies or riling at Stalin, who ordered their arrest. There is a story of this peppery woman shouting at him. You're a tormentor. That's what you are. You torment your own son, your wife, and the whole Russian people. When Stalin discussed the importance of party above family, Yanikidze replied, What about your children? Stalin shouted. They're hers, pointing at Nadia, who ran out crying. Nadia was becoming ever more hysterical, or as Molotov put it, unbalanced. Sergo's daughter, Eteri, who had every reason to hate Stalin, explains, Stalin didn't treat her well, but she, like all the Aloyulevs, was very unstable. She seemed to become more estranged from the children and everything else. Stalin confided in Khrushchev that he sometimes locked himself in the bathroom while she beat on the door, shouting, You're an impossible man. It's impossible to live with you. This image of Stalin as the powerless henpecked husband, besieged, cowering in his own bathroom by the wild-eyed Nadia, must rank as the most incongruous vision of the man of steel in his entire career. Himself frantic with his mission in jeopardy, Stalin was baffled by Nadia's mania. She told a friend that everything bored her. She was sick of everything. What about the children, the friend asked the friend. Everything, even the children, end quote. And right as all of this is going down, something happens very personal to the dictator that by all accounts changed him forever, and not for the better. So his wife, Nadia, shoots herself, and there's a lot of evidence that she did it in large part of what her husband was doing in Ukraine. Although, you know, being married to to Stalin, I mean, that, that couldn't have helped. Um, it hasn't been proven that he had anything to do with it, although, you know, some people do suspect that. Um, she shot herself in the heart. Um, so the regime told everyone that it was heart failure. You know, nobody wanted to say that, you know, Stalin's wife killed himself. Um, well, heart failure. That makes sense, I guess. Um, Stalin was sort of shaken by the event. He talks openly about stepping down from power, but no one wants to raise their hand in that board meeting. I mean, <laughs> would you? Uh, yes, yeah, Stalin, uh, maybe you shouldn't be supreme leader. Maybe somebody else. Uh, no. Um, so this would be a recurring theme. According to Stephen Kotkin, Stalin would tender his resignation no less than six times up to this point. 
And although certainly a lot of people would like to see the old man off, I mean, who would put their neck on the line? I mean, no one, right? So, I mean, you have Trotsky, you know, way off in the West somewhere denouncing him, but, you know, who cares about Trotsky anymore? Um, And, of course, a bunch of nobodies from wherever existed of the far left in Europe or wherever else, you know, those people that hadn't aligned with the common turn, I mean, they might not like Stalin, but those voices were, they're sort of like voices crying in the wilderness. I mean, you know. Well, actually, you know what? In all this giant mess, there are a precious few voices within the Soviet Union, even at this time, that are willing to acknowledge that, you know, the dictator is driving the Soviet Union off a cliff. Um, And when you hear about how it went down for those people that were willing to stand up to him, it kind of answers the question, you know, why didn't people stand up to this guy? Um, Well, this should answer that for you. So, Martemian Ryutin was one of what were called old Bolsheviks, people from the original Russian Revolution, you know, way back a million years ago in 1917. It's funny how at this point, they're like ancient relics of a bygone era, even though the era was like 15 years ago. I mean, think about it. Imagine the US Congress like eliminated everyone that had served under Bush or like even the Obama administration. And there are still some Trump people around, but even they're feeling the heat. Or uh, how about this? Have you ever been to a job where you know the company's been around for a while, but the management is like, well, look at all the new faces here. It's so great to see all these new people that we've hired. And then you think to yourself, like, oh, crap, what have I gotten myself into? We've all been to, like, that company meeting. Um, Well... By 1932, it seems that most of the original um, people that Stalin had worked alongside, those people had been sacrificed. The people who had mortgaged their own morality in the service of this perfect Marxist world, um, they had been proven to be secret agents of the imperialist West, bourgeois nationalists, fascists, or whatever else. It's a giant grab bag here. Um, Most of these guys are executed in prison or in exile. By 1938, they would all be gone for the most part. I mean, picture Jesus killing off all of the 12 disciples and then just sort of keeping the one fill-in, Matthias. Do you remember Matthias? Like the guy who takes the place of Judas. And, you know, he goes to Messiah and he says, uh, hey, brother, uh, you're a good party man and a good worker. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're it. You're going to inherit the whole shop. So, I mean, it's sort of like that. So, Ryutin had allied with some people that Stalin had beefs with over the years and had since, you know, fallen out of favor in the party. Some of the more conservative members like Nikolai Bukharin and Alexei Ryokov, to just sort of name a few. Um, he had been ejected from the party four months earlier in 1930, but then he was allowed back. He formed a clandestine group uh, known as the uh, the Union of Marxist-Leninists, which uh, opposed some of Stalin's heavy-handed policies, um, especially what is going on with collectivization. So he's going to publish a 200-page pamphlet 
and was able to circulate it amongst the, uh, the top brass. Stephen Kotkin writes, quote, Ryutin's nearly 200-page Stalin and the Crisis of the Proletarian Dictatorship was a marvel. It condemned the adventuristic rate of industrialization and the adventuristic collectivization with the aid of unbelievable acts of violence and terror. Defended Trotsky as a genuine revolutionary despite his shortcomings and excoriated the rightists for capitulation, yet underscored how the right wing has proved correct in the economic field. Ryutin brimmed with rage at Stalin's muzzling of party leaders and with idealism about Marx and Lenin. To place the name of Lenin alongside the name of Stalin is like placing Mount Elbrus along a heap of, alongside a heap of dung. He proposed 25 concrete measures from new elections to party organs on the basis of inter-party democracy to a mass purge of the OGPU from dispersal of coercively formed collective farms and loss-making state farms, to ending decolocization, state procurements of grain and livestock, and agricultural exports. Ryutin's prerequisite for the proposals was fulfilling Lenin's testament. He concluded that putting an end to Stalin, the dictator, and his clique was the primary duty of every honest Bolshevik, end quote. So what happened to this brave man and anyone who dared to support him? Um... Well, no public trial. Uh, he gets grilled by the secret police, and then it's off to the labor camp. He was executed in January of 1937. Uh, his family would also be imprisoned as well, you know, just to be safe. Well, even when the boss, who had already murdered so many, was a personal wreck, um, everyone felt so much pity for him. Uh, you know, poor Stalin. Um, he had been flicking cigarette butts at Nadia just a few hours earlier, and then she shoots herself. What a loss. What a loss. And that's true, by the way. They actually had a party that night, and, you know, well. Stalin would say of Nadia, uh, quote, she left me like an enemy, or even, uh, she crippled me. <clears throat> He wasn't a womanizer, though. Um, he certainly cheated on her, but not as flagrantly as most of the other 20th century dictators um, would, you know, their wives. Um, or, or even as much as, like, the other potentates that sort of surrounded him. Um, I kind of want to believe that somehow when she died, he that's when he really turns into a supervillain. Um at least the supervillain he would become later, but, you know, that's a narrative that just seems a little bit too satisfying. Um, Stalin comes across as either self-absorbed or, you know, just a diehard ideologue. Either way, he had little room for the sort of sentimentality that a healthy marriage or even a healthy family wife would demand. Um, still, those close to him say that he was not the same afterwards. Um, this is from Montefiore, quote, Nadia's abandonment of Stalin wounded and humiliate him, breaking one more of his meager ties to human sympathy, redoubling his brutality, jealousy, coldness, and self-pity. But the political challenges of 1932, particularly what Stalin regarded as betrayals by some of his comrades, also played their part. After 1932, Kaganovich observed, Stalin changed, end quote. So back in Ukraine, things just got worse and worse. 
And when you look at the mortality statistics, this is when 75% of the deaths would occur, 1933. And that doesn't count all the people who would be so weakened that they would just die in the years immediately following. As planned from the beginning, party activists descended on Ukraine with ruthless abandon. Their job was to take everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. And Abelbaum writes, quote, That winter, the teams operating in villages all across Ukraine began to search not just for grain, but for anything and everything edible. They were specifically equipped to do so with special tools, long metal rods, sometimes topped by hooks, that could be used to prod any surface in search of grain. The peasants had many different names for these instruments, calling them iron wires, cudgels, metal sticks, sharp rods, lances, spears, and spokes. Thousands of witnesses have described how they were used to search ovens, beds, cradles, walls, trunks, chimneys, attics, roofs, and cellars, to pry behind icons, and in barrels, in hollow tree trunks, in dog houses, down wells, and beneath piles of garbage. The men and women who used them stopped at nothing, even traveling through cemeteries, barns, empty houses, and orchards, end quote. And I kid you not, they are even going to actually you know, explicitly go after people's dogs. Um, Quote, many other survivors speak of dogs being taken or killed, so much so that the hunt for dogs, perhaps to stop them from barking or biting, almost took on the aspect of sport. I can never forget so long as I lived how they drove their two vehicles, each carrying eight or twelve men. They were riding with their legs hung over the sides, and with their rifles they went from yard to yard to kill all the dogs. After this, when they had destroyed all the dogs, they started gathering all of the food, end quote. So many towns are going to post lookouts on a high place somewhere, and if they saw any smoke coming out of a chimney, they would go to that house and demand to know what was being cooked. If there was any food, it would be taken away, unless it was like soup, and that would just be dumped on the ground. And, you know, not only would they be looking for food, but also if the peasants had any money or valuables, you know, of course, they'd take that too. Applebaum writes, quote, during searches for both food and money, violence was frequently used. One woman from Chernihiv province remembered, during the search, the activist asked where our gold and our grain was. Mother replied that she had neither. She was tortured. Her fingers were put in a door and the door was closed. Her fingers broke. Blood ran. She lost consciousness. Water was poured over her head and she was tortured again. They beat her put a needle under her fingernails. Two sisters from Zitomir province witnessed a similar attack on their father. Our father hid three buckets of barley in the attic, and our mother stealthily made porridge in the evening to keep us alive. Then somebody must have denounced us. They took everything and brutally beat our father for not giving up that barley during the searches. They held his fingers and slammed the door to break them. They swore at him and they kicked him out the door. It left us numb to see him beaten and sworn at like that. We were a proper family, always spoke quietly in our father's presence, end quote. Timothy Snyder writes, quote, Peasants had killed their livestock or lost it to the state. They had killed their chickens. They had killed their cats and their dogs. They had scared the birds away by hunting them. The human beings had fled too, if they were lucky. More likely, they too were dead or too weak to make noise, cut off from the attention of the world by a state that controlled the press and the movements of foreign journalists, cut off from official help or sympathy by a party line that equated starvation with sabotage, 
cut off from the economy by intense poverty, inequitable planning, cut off from the rest of the country by regulations and police cordons. People died alone. Families died alone. Whole villages died alone. Two decades later, the political philosopher Hannah Arendt would present this famine in the Ukraine as the crucial event in the creation of a modern atomized society, the alienation of all from all. Starvation led not to rebellion, but to amorality, to crime, to indifference, to madness, to paralysis, and finally to death. Peasants endured months of indescribable suffering, indescribable because of the of its duration and pain, but also indescribable because people were too weak, too poor, too illiterate to chronicle what was happening to them. But the survivors did remember, as one of them recalled, no matter what the peasants did, they went on dying, dying, dying. The death was slow, humiliating, ubiquitous, and generic. To die of starvation with some sort of dignity was beyond the reach of almost everyone. Petro Velidi showed rare strength when he dragged himself through the village on the day he expected to die. The other villagers asked him where he was going, to the cemetery to lay himself down. He did not want strangers coming and dragging his body away to a pit, so he had dug his own grave. By the time he reached the cemetery, another body had filled it. He dug himself another one, lay down, and waited. End quote. So this is the point in the story you know, the spring and summer of 1933, where it goes from, a, you know, a, a narrative of, of starving people and government repression to sort of a post-apocalyptic movie, or, or even an episode of The Walking Dead. Um, when you read about it or think to yourself, I mean, surely this has happened before in human history, but it must have belonged to some ancient famine when you know, it just didn't rain for years on end, or or there were like plagues of locusts or something. You never think that scenes like this could happen in a modern society, in a year where the weather was actually all right. I mean, globally in 1933, there was actually a glut in the grain market. In the U.S., people were actually, the government was actually paying farmers not to grow crops because there was so much. You can see documentary footage of people, you know, pouring out milk intentionally, um, you know, just dumping it on the ground because there's such an overabundance. This is happening in the middle of that. How do you explain it? Is it a mistake? Is it mismanagement? Some people still want to believe that narrative. I mean, you know, call this a genocide and they'll get very, very testy with you. Of course, they, you know, those kind of people are probably the ones that keep, you know, posters of Lenin around, and they like to talk about capitalist exploitation. Even scholars like Mock Tarber will have you believe that, you know, it was like field mice or something that caused all of this. Well, you know, this is the part of the story where people really start getting desperate, you know, they, they stop behaving like people. They're they're more just like like life forms. I can't imagine what it'd be like to be, you know, arrested and, and shipped to a, a concentration camp. Um you know, you could even if you use your imagination, you could you know, imagine what it would be like to you know be sentenced to death and you know, to, to be shot, to be gassed. This though, however, is just seems like something that's just different entirely. 
Okay, so to picture your neighborhood, everything is the same. Your neighbors, your your family, your your friends, all the things that you're used to. But picture your refrigerator, the the cabinets, and the you know the the, the grocery stores. Everything's completely empty. You and everyone you know is getting painfully thin. Their eyes are sunken. I mean, picture your your child is like a stick figure. Your baby won't stop crying. You're desperate enough to mow the lawn and eat the grass clippings. You're desperate enough to dig in the garden and eat worms. You'll eat spiders or bugs, anything. When someone dies, your next door neighbor, you know, could just fall down, you know, next to his car and dead. What do you do? I mean, you're, you're, kid is days away from death and you know it. So what are you going to do with the body? I mean, this is what daily life is like. And this is not just one little town in this disaster movie. This is what life is like in a nation of over 30 million people. And you know how people are. I mean, you have good people And then you have some bad people. And then you have a lot of good people that might not be so good if they were put in a very desperate situation. When you read stories like this, this is the sort of feeling you get. And the stories are truly remarkable. So, you know, in 1933, Stalin is determined to see his policy in the Ukraine through his belief in capitalist encirclement. And achieving socialism in one country will just trump all else. Um, Applebaum writes, quote, The starvation of a human body, once it begins, always follows the same course. In the first phase, the body consumes its stores of glucose, feelings of extreme hunger set in, along with constant thoughts of food. In the second phase, which can last for several weeks, the body begins to consume its own fats, and the organism weakens drastically. In the third phase, the body devours its own proteins, cannibalizing tissues and muscles. Eventually, the skin becomes thin, the eyes become distended, the belly and legs swollen as extreme imbalances lead the body to retain water. Small amounts of effort lead to exhaustion. Along the way, different kinds of diseases can hasten death. Scurvy, kwashiorkor, marasmus, pneumonia, typhus, diphtheria, and a wide range of infections and skin diseases caused directly or indirectly by lack of food. The rural Ukrainians defied of divide of food in the autumn and winter of 1932 began to experience all these stages of hunger in the spring of 1933 if they had not already done so earlier. Years later, some of those who survived sought to describe these terrible months in written accounts and thousands of interviews. For others who managed to live through this period, the experience was so awful that they were later unable to recall anything about it. One survivor, a child of 11 at the time, could remember things that caused sadness or disappointment before the famine, even trivial things such as a lost earring. But she had no emotional memory of the famine itself, no horror, no sorrow. Probably my feelings were atrophied by hunger. She and others would have wondered whether famine wasn't somehow deadening and experienced that suppressed emotions and even memory later in life. To some, it seemed as if the famine had mutilated the immature souls of children. Some searched for metaphors to describe what had happened. Uh, Tetiana Pavlichka, who lived in Kiev province, uh, remembered her sister Tamara had a large swollen stomach. Her neck was long and thin like a bird's neck. People don't look like people. 
they were more like starving ghosts. Another survivor remembered that his mother looked like a glass jar filled with clear spring water. All her body that could be seen was see-through and filled with water, like a plastic bag. A third remembered her brother lying down, alive but completely swollen, his body shining as if it were made of glass. We felt giddy, another recalled. Everything was as if in a fog. There was a horrible pain in our legs, as if someone were pulling the tendons out of them. Yet another could not rid herself of the memory of a child, sitting, rocking its body, back and forth, back and forth, reciting one endless song in a half voice, eat, 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 end quote. And again, all this is going on while life is sort of going the way it's always gone, just minus the food. There are stories of children sitting in school, a whole class, and, you know, one of the students just drops dead, like right there in class. Kids will be outside playing, and one of them just dies. Unfortunately, it was the young and the old that were first to go. Um, there'll be pictures of people walking to work, just minding their business, not even stopping to look at the body of some guy that, you know, you and I would take for a passed out drunk, but no, that's just another person that died of hunger, you know, seen about 10 of those today. I mean, people would often go mental, quote, for those who remained alive, the physical symptoms were often just the beginning. The psychological changes could be equally dramatic. Some spoke later of a psychosis of hunger through the, of course, uh, such a thing could not be defined or measured. From hunger, people's psyches were disturbed. Common sense left them. Natural, natural instincts faded, recalled uh, Petro Boychik, uh, Pitrim Sorokin, who experienced starvation in the 1921 famine. He remembered that after only a week of food deprivation, it was very difficult for me to concentrate for any length of time on anything but food. For short periods, by forcing myself, I was able to chase away the thoughts of hunger from my consciousness, but invariably they returned and took possession of it. Eventually, ideas about food begin to multiply abundantly in the consciousness, and they acquire a diversity of unprecedented vivacity, often reaching the stage of hallucinations. Other kinds of thoughts fade from the field of consciousness, become very vague and uninteresting. Over and over, survivors have written and spoken about how personalities were altered by hunger, how normal behavior ceased, the desire to eat simply overwhelmed everything else, and familial feelings above all. A woman who had always been kind and generous abruptly changed when food began to run short. She sent her own mother out of the house and told her to go live with another rel relative. You've lived with us for two weeks, she told her. Live with him and do not burden me or my children, end quote. So people would behave in ways to others that were just unimaginable in normal life. And others, well, I mean, they would take a further step. They would become murderers. Uh, quote, the transformation of honest people into thieves was only the beginning. As the weeks passed, the famine literally drove people crazy, provoking irrational anger and more extraordinary acts of aggression. The famine was horrible, but that was the only thing. People became so angry and wild, it was scary to go outside, recalled one survivor, a boy at the time. He remembered that a neighbor's son teased other children with a loaf of bread and jam that his family had procured. The other children began throwing stones at him, eventually beating him to death. Another boy died in the ensuing battle for the loaf of bread. 
Adults were no better equipped to cope with the rage brought on by hunger. One survivor remembered that a neighbor became so angered by the sounds of his own children crying for food that he smothered his baby in the cradle and killed two of his other children by slamming their heads against a wall. Only one of his sons managed to escape. A similar story was recorded by the secret police in Venezia province, where one farmer, unable to bear the thought of his children starving to death, lit a fire in the stove and closed the chimney in order to kill them. The children began to suffocate and cry for help because of the fumes. Then he strangled them with his own hands, after which he went to the village council and confessed. The farmer said he had committed the murders because there was nothing to eat. During a subsequent search of his house, no food was found at all. Vigilism, vigilantism was widespread. Armed guards would shoot gleaners on sight. Anyone who tried to steal from a warehouse met the same fate. As the famine worsened, ordinary people took vengeance on those who stole. Oletsky Litvinitsky remembered seeing a collective farm boss pick up a boy who had stolen bread and slam his head against a tree, a murder for which he was never held responsible. Hannah Tavitskia knew of a woman who killed her niece for stealing a loaf of bread. Mikola Basha's older brother was caught looking for spoiled potatoes in the kitchen garden of a neighbor, who then grabbed him and put him in a cellar filled with waist-high water. Another survivor's aunt was stabbed to death with a pitchfork for stealing scallions from a neighbor's yard, end quote. And then an odd thing sort of happens. A lot of people will go into this eerie fatalistic state that is just so otherworldly as if the moral and physical exhaustion is just so great that they've come to the conclusion that there's just no more hope and they just sort of give up so uh vasily grossman is going to describe uh kind of how this works in the, his book uh, forever flowering quote in the beginning, starvation drives a person out of the house. In the first stage, he is tormented and driven as though by fire and torn, both in guts and soul. And so he tries to escape from his home. People dig up worms, collect grass, and they even make the effort to break through and get to the city, away from home, away from home. And then a day comes when the starving person crawls back into his house, and the meaning of his this famine... Uh, starvation has won. The human being cannot be saved. He lies down on his bed and stays there. Not because he has no strength, but he has no interest in life and no longer cares about living. He lies there quietly and does not want to be touched. He does not want to even eat. All he wants is to be left alone and for things to be quiet. End quote. So people will write about how at some point funerals just stop. Uh, people no longer have the strength to mourn. They've just grown accustomed to it. Bodies start piling up like sort of garbage in the street or snow that has to be cleared. Wolves were, you know, almost, well, they really weren't seen in Ukraine, but they kind of reappear up to this point and they start to enter towns and eat the corpses. Well, someone has to clear the bodies, right? Well, when everyone's on death's door, I mean, that's easier said than done. Often, grave diggers would be paid by the body, and survivors report that, you know, that's how they survived the famine, since, you know, they were paid bread to bury people. They would walk around the neighborhood, and if ravens or vultures were circling over a house, or, you know, if, you know, some place gave off a, you know, all-too-familiar stench, then... Those were promising signs. 
it was just like that image everyone has about, you know, Europe during the Black Death with a guy, you know, going around with a cart saying, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. Well, not everybody is operating above board, though. Very often, if a person was near death but not quite there yet, the burial team would pull the victim close to the door so that when they finally died, they would only have to lug the body so far. Uh, sometimes, however, though, uh, something far more sinister happens. Uh, Applebaum writes, quote, Some burial teams may have stretched indifference to the point of cruelty. Many survivors from various parts of Ukraine repeat stories of very ill people being buried alive. There were cases when they buried half-living people. Good people, leave me alone. I am not dead, the corpses used to cry. Go to hell. You want us to come tomorrow again, was the reply. Another team also took away still living people, arguing that the next day they would be on another street, so they might as well take their body by now and get the payment for each corpse and eat more themselves. Many felt that once they had dug the mass graves, it didn't matter how they were filled. If they didn't shoot, they economized on bullets and pulled living people into the hole. Even families treated their dying members the same. One grandmother fell ill and lost consciousness. When she fell into a sleep-like state, everyone at home thought she was dead. When they came to bury her, however, they noticed that she was still breathing. But they buried her anyway because they said she was going to die anyway. No one was sorry. Some, however, managed to escape. One man, Dennis Levid, has described being thrown into a mass grave himself. He tried to get out, but discovered he was too weak. He sat there and waited for death, or for another corpse to fall on top of him. He was eventually rescued by a tractor driver who had come to bulldoze earth over the pit. His story was echoed by that of a woman who was rescued from a mass grave by another woman passing by who heard her screams. Similar stories originate from Chernyavsky, Kiev, Zidomir, and Venetia provinces, among others. Anyone who has ever witnessed such a thing or worse experienced it, never forgot. I was so frightened by what had happened that I could not talk for several days. I saw dead bodies in my dreams, and I screamed a lot, end quote. And, well, with all these dead bodies around and all these starving people around, well, like, you know, I think you can see where this is headed. Now, cannibalism was not unknown in the Ukraine or even in the Soviet Union at large. There were instances of it in czarist times and most recently during the 1921-3 Soviet famine. But at no time was it ever as widespread and at times endemic as it is now. The reports come in from all over the territory. Um, there was even a black market in human meat. And there's evidence that some human flesh was sold to the state to meet these infamous meat quotas. Uh, Snyder writes, quote, In the face of starvation, some families divided, parents turning against children and the children against one another. As the state police, the OGPU, found itself obliged to record in Soviet Ukraine, families killed their weakest members, usually children, and used the meat for eating. Countless parents killed and ate their children and then died of starvation later anyway. One mother cooked her son for herself and her daughter. One six-year-old girl, saved by other relatives, saw her father when he was sharpening a knife to slaughter her. Other combinations were, of course, possible. One family killed their daughter-in-law, fed her head to the pigs, and then roasted the rest of her body. 
In a broader sense, though, it was politics as well as starvation that destroyed families, turning the younger generation against the older. Members of the young communists served in the brigades that requisitioned food. Still younger children and the pioneers were supposed to be the eyes and the ears of the party inside the family. The healthier ones were assigned to watch over the fields to prevent theft. Half a million pre-adolescent and teenage boys and girls stood in the watchtowers observing adults in Soviet Ukraine in the summer of 1933. All children were expected to report on their parents. Survival was a moral as well as physical struggle. One woman doctor wrote to a friend in June of 1933 that she had not yet become a cannibal, but was not sure that I shall not be one by the time this letter reaches you. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. Ukraine in 1933 was full of orphans, and sometimes people took them in. Yet, without food, there was little that even the kindest of strangers could do for such children. The boys and girls lay on the street, the sheets and blankets, eating their own excrement, waiting for death, end quote. Now, it should be noted that cannibalism was never accepted, and it always was a capital offense, but the frequency of it and the acceptance and almost normalization of it, to a certain extent, really frightened people at the time. Um, secret police reports even talk about it becoming a habit with some people. So, I mean, yeah, this is really sort of like a walking dead, you know, kind of a feel. Um so how does the society go back to normal after that? I mean, there are stories of a woman whose, whose cow was stolen and eaten by a neighbor. When she found out, she went to the guy's house and, and gouged his eyes out with a garden rake. I mean, people are doing some of the most insane things you have ever heard of. One thing that did not happen, though, suicide. I mean, just an absolute bizarre irony, if you ask me. I mean, if there was ever a time when people should want and have every reason to kill themselves, it was now. But no, I mean, maybe it's just sort of that will to live. I, mean, I don't know. Um, the state capitalized on the desperation of people, though. They created sort of this dark way for people to survive if they had valuables to sell. Um, you see, over the years... Um, a lot of people in Ukraine, but also elsewhere in the Soviet Union, they had sort of stashed away little bits of gold and silver. Usually these were family heirlooms that went all the way back to Tsarist times. You know, a wedding ring here, a medal someone's great-grandfather had earned there, maybe a coin or two. People held on to this stuff for sentimental reasons, but also because one never knew what would go on with the ruble. I mean, if you lived through the hyperinflation of the early 1920s, you'd understand. Well, the USSR, perpetually short of hard assets, had a very creative way to make up the shortfall. Um, you had these little stores, these little state-run you know, shops opening up um, in famine areas called Torxine shops. Um, they're sort of like pawn shops, but kind of a little bit different. Um, so picture a pawn shop where like the items on display, you know, instead of being like trinkets and collectibles, 
they're all loaves of bread or canned food or whatever. So you go in with your your gold and your silver like little items or whatever, and then then you come away with enough food to hopefully stay alive for a few days. You know what choice is there? There would be about fifteen hundred of these little stores um, in Ukraine, and as you might imagine, people got taken advantage of quite often. Applebaum writes, quote, Ivan Klimenko and his mother traveled from Krasna Solbika, a village in Kiev province, uh, to Krishnayask Street to sell his grandmother's wedding ring for several scoops of flour. No one had bothered to weigh the ring, so they didn't know if they received a fair deal. Once they got home, his mother discovered that the flour was mixed with lime. They ate it anyway. Hirori Simia went to a uh, scene with his stepfather who wanted to sell his army medal, a uh, silver Georgian cross. The seller wouldn't accept it. This particular medal uh, was, the clerk said, only given to servants of the Tsar with high positions in the officer corps. Simia's stepfather protested in vain that he'd been an army doctor who had treated the wounded soldiers regardless of rank. The seller replied, so you treated officers, upper class. Enemies of the revolution, yes? Get out of here, I'll call the police, end quote. So, how did this all end? Um, by the summer of 1933, it was clear, even to Stalin, that the situation in Ukraine was beyond critical. Uh, it was catastrophic. If he allowed things to persist in this way, there would be no harvest because there would be no one left to do the harvesting. The sources from the time are in agreement. This was the reason the famine ended. It wasn't because he had a change of heart or had some, oh my God, what have we done moment. He let up on the grain quotas for Ukraine, um, not out of benevolence, you know, not out of, you know, him being some sort of all-knowing father in, in Moscow who's showing mercy. Um, he did it because he had to. So, the, the quota was reduced by about 500,000 tons for 1933. And then in 1934, um, you know, it would be reduced again. You know, it's a, such magnanimity. Um, well, during this whole episode, did he ever once visit the afflicted areas? Well, need you ask? Of course not. Oh, and it gets better. Stalin would loan the seeds <laughs> as well as food, too. So, you know, again, it's like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll help you out. But, you know, everything is still on credit, guys. Yay. So, overall output cratered. Uh, in 1931, overall exports for the uh, Soviet Union were 5.2 million tons. In 1933, you are looking at just 1.6 million tons. And it was even lower in 1934, 1.4 million tons. The 1933 harvest would be an abject failure, but there would be no trouble from Ukraine from, I will, at that point, straight through to the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. It had been fully absorbed. The dog would come back from obedient school, a very changed animal. Um, it had been conditioned. Another reason for the let-up was the fact that Russians being brought to replace the dead Ukrainian collective farmers were having a hard time adapting to 
farming Ukrainian steplands. I mean, it's just a different climate. The soil is different. You can't just plop people down in a totally unfamiliar environment and expect them to thrive, you know. However, what Stalin had effectively done was demonstrate that he could force his will on the nation and do so with impunity. Resistance had been crushed, whereas before there was criticism, now only adulation. Um, you're looking at about four or five million deaths in Ukraine. Um, over the rest of the USSR, you can probably tack on another, you know, two or three. Um, and that's not even counting dekulakization. Um, still, um, look at how people are falling over themselves to praise the dear leader. So, again, it's just almost otherworldly, really. Um, you know, just check out the head of the Ukrainian Communist Party, uh, Pavel Postyshev. And he's just brown-nosing Stalin. So there would be this, uh, it would be called the Congress of Victors, um, Soviet, a party congress from uh, 1934. So Postichev um, is going to give a speech. Um, he's going to start a speech by taking personal responsibility for gross errors and blunders without ever even mentioning the famine. And then he just sort of blames any possible thing that went wrong on, on nationalism, counter-revolutionaries, invisible foreign forces. I mean, you get it. Uh, here's a little selection of that speech. Quote, The CPBU, the Ukrainian Communist Party, did not take into account all the distinctive characteristics of the class struggle in Ukraine and the peculiarities of the internal situation in the CPBU. What are these characteristics? The first characteristic is that in Ukraine, the class enemy masks his activity against socialist construction with the nationalist banner and chauvinist slogans. The second characteristic is that the Ukrainian Kulak underwent a lengthy schooling in struggle against Soviet power. For in Ukraine, the civil war was especially fierce and lengthy, given that political banditry was in control of Ukraine for an especially long period. The third characteristic is that splinter groups of various counter-revolutionary organizations and parties settled in Ukraine more than elsewhere, being attracted to Ukraine on account of its proximity to Western borders. The fourth characteristic is that Ukraine proves to be an object of attraction to various interventionist centers and finds itself under especially diligent observation. And finally, the fifth characteristic is that deviationists in the CPBU and all party questions usually allied and continue to ally themselves with the nationalist elements in their ranks, with the deviationists on the nationality question. Unfortunately, the CPBU did not draw all those conclusions in full measure. There lies the explanation of its errors and failures in agriculture and in carrying out Leninist nationality policy in Ukraine, end quote. And there you have it. It was all our fault, Comrade Stalin. We promised to try harder. That was the line. Thank you, sir. May I have another? I don't know if you remember that. Um, <laughs> needless to say, it was not legal to speak of the famine at all in the USSR until the late 1980s. Um, that would be anti-Soviet agitation or fake news or information. Only instead of getting you banned from Twitter or getting a strike on your Facebook, you know, you'd be tossed in 
a labor camp along with your family, you know, of course, because you can't be too sure with, you know, enemies of the state. Um, as for Pavel Postyshev, um, do you think his brown nosing saved him? No, <laughs> he would be shot in uh, 1938, you know, again, because he was actually, you know, in league with the uh, fascists. Well, not really, but you know how it is. Um, so now you ask yourself, surely people noticed outside the Soviet Union. Surely there were sanctions. Surely it was all over CNN. Well, no, not so much. You see, this was the Great Depression. There were plenty of people that were a little bit down on capitalism. Not only that, but, you know, the Nazis were starting to make some waves over in Germany. And although they had a few supporters here and there... Outside of Germany and maybe Italy? Well, no, they're not so popular. People just wanted to like this wonderful experiment of social justice going on in Russia. Um, in the halls of power, I mean, not so much. I mean, they had a fix on Stalin there. But in the media, he had a lot of allies. I mean, sure, Stalin might be a little rough around the edges, but the workers' paradise is right around the corner. Um, and, well, he had a no bigger ally than New York Times reporter Walter Durante. Um, Durante famously brushed off the millions of deaths in the gulag. With, you know, the, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. I mean, yes, that he's the guy that coined that phrase, and it was in relation to this. You know, um... He was the New York Times reporter that was sort of like the the liaison in, in Moscow. So, Durante was allowed personal access to Stalin, which was a huge deal. Um, so, I mean, what's the catch? Well, uh, he basically was expected to write nothing but fluff pieces for the progressive New York Times readership back home. And you can still read his stuff. The articles are like right there. Just Google them. It's kind of like when Dennis Rodman visits like North Korea and then, you know, well, wouldn't you know it? Kim Kim Jong-un isn't so bad. He's just misunderstood. So the Soviet Union is a closed place. Um, you can't just poke your dirty capitalist fingers around in there without some special permission. Well, um, a Welsh reporter by the name of Gareth Jones did just that. So what Jones will do, and this is during like the peak of the famine, he's going to sneak on a train um, to Kharkov from Moscow. And then 40 miles ahead of Kharkov, he's just going to jump off the train. And then he'll just walk following the train tracks all the way to Kharkiv. Um, again, March 1933. This is right when the famine is just about to reach um, its climax. He'll recount, quote, I crossed the border from Great Russia into the Ukraine. Everywhere I talked to peasants who walked past, they all had the same story. There is no bread. We haven't had bread for two months. A lot are dying. The first village had no more potatoes left, and the store of the Buryak, the beetroot, was running out. They all said, the cattle are dying. Nechem Kormit. There's nothing to feed them with. We used to feed the world, and now we are hungry. 
how can we sow when we have so few horses left? How will we be able to work in the fields when we are so weak from want of food? When I caught up with a bearded present who was walking along, his feet were covered with sacking. We started talking. He spoke Ukrainian Russian. I gave him a lump of bread and one of, of cheese. You couldn't buy that anywhere for 20 rubles. There's just no food. We walked along and talked. Before the war, this was all gold. We had horses and cows and pigs and chicken. Now we are ruined. We are doomed. So he would go on to Kharkov, and um, it would be the same there. He, he'd write, quote, um, They are cruelly strict now in the factories. If you are absent one day, you are sacked. Uh, get your bread card taken away and cannot get a passport. Life is a nightmare. I, I cannot go on the train. It kills my nerves. It was more terrible than ever. If you say a word now in the factory, you are dismissed. There is no freedom. Everywhere persecution. Everywhere terror. One went man we knew said, my brother died, but he still lies there, and we don't know what to do, uh, how to bury him. For there are cues for the burial. There is no hope for the future. End quote. So, you know, he's, he's going to make it out of Kharkiv and eventually back to Moscow and then finally out of the USSR. And then he finally goes public with what he saw. I mean, right to the Associated Press. At first, it makes a big splash. There were rumors about what was going on in Ukraine and, you know, but the Soviet government just sort of categorically denied everything. I mean, plus around the world, there was just too much production. I mean, like I said earlier, in the U.S., farmers are being paid not to grow crops. Titles like Famine Grips Russia, Millions Dying, Russian Famine, you know, um, As Great as the Starvation of 1921, and, and Famine Rules Russia appeared in newspapers all over the world. Um, a lot of people, they just sort of, are you sure about that? So, I mean, well, how do you think the big media of his day responded? Uh do you think he got a Pulitzer Prize? Um, <laughs> you know, a new CNN special contributor, Gareth Jones, right? Nope. The independent fact checkers swatted him down with impunity. The Soviet press accused him of outright lying, but, you know, that we can expect. But the Western media savaged him. And then, of course, his chief accuser... You guessed it, Walter Durante. In a New York Times article entitled, Russians Hungry But Not Starving, he would write, quote, There appears from a British source a big scare story in the American press about famine in the Soviet Union with thousands already dead and millions menaced by death and starvation. Its author is Gareth Jones, who is a former secretary to David Lloyd George, who recently spent three weeks in the Soviet Union and reached the conclusion that the country was on the verge of a terrific smash, as he told the writer. Mr. Jones is a man of keen and active mind, and he has taken the trouble to learn Russian, which he speaks with considerable fluency. But the writer thought Mr. Jones's judgment was somewhat hasty and asked him on what it was based. It appeared that he had made a 40-mile walk through villages in the neighborhood of Kharkiv and had found conditions sad. I suggested that that was a rather inadequate cross-section of a big country, but nothing could shake his conviction of impending doom. End quote. 
And that was it. Uh, Durante had like a million Twitter followers and Jones had like 200. And oh Lord, thank God there was no Twitter back then or poor Gareth Jones would get buried under so many snarky tweets that it would be centuries before archaeologists could unearth his remains. But it gets better. Um, Durante would win a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on collectivization and the famine, and it would be his fluff pieces that finally convinced the Roosevelt administration to grant formal recognition to Stalin's USSR. I mean, all the way through World War II, you will have people like Joseph Davies representing the U.S. in Moscow. Um, he would actually watch the so the show trials during um, Stalin's purges, and he would talk about how they were just such great examples of revolutionary justices and how the cases were airtight. Um, there would actually be a movie made on this. It's on YouTube. It's called Mission to Moscow. Um, it's it depicts Stalin as like a super kindly old man. Um, he'll visit a factory and comment on, uh, yeah, yeah, I saw a guy with a wrench and he turned it the wrong way and it looked like he was doing it on purpose. You know, the whole thing about like the wreckers, he's giving credence to it. Uh, Molotov's wife is going to be like a fashion designer. I mean, it just, there's so many ridiculous elements of the movie. I could do a whole episode on it, like, by itself. Um, I mean, the movie was so ridiculous that they wouldn't allow it to be seen in the Soviet Union because its depictions of the place were so rose-colored that they were afraid the Russian people would think it was a comedy. <laughs> I swear to God. I mean, it's a piece that makes the Soviet Union, it's supposed to make it look great, but it makes it look so great that the Russians would start laughing at it. So, and there's this other movie that comes out during the period called The North Star. Now, this is during, you know, the, the, the war years, right? This movie's, you know, it's released in 1943, and the movie depicts a very idyllic Ukrainian village. It looks like that, that, it looks like it'd be in that part of, like, Disney World, where they have, like, these different stereotypical versions of all the countries. I mean, you know the place. Um, in one part, they sing this song that goes uh, sort of like this. Sing me not of other towns, the towns that twinkle and shine. Excuse me. But there's no village like mine. And then all these peasants are sitting and they're super happy and on back of, like, a you know, a, a, like a cart. Um, there are just so many songs about how happy everyone is. And then, of course, you know, this is the war, right? Nazis. <laughs> and of course, even though it's 1943, you know, the, the Nazis that are invading, they all look like stock characters from like a Quentin Tarantino movie. You know, Hugo Boss uniforms, the captain has a monocle. I mean, the works. These Nazis went as far as to kidnap the town's children and use their blood for transfusion. So they're like literally blood suckers. And I did some actual research on this. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that that actually happened, but it was a theme from Soviet propaganda from that time period. So like this American movie is just sort of taking that on, although historians, you know, as a rule, kind of don't think that that happened. Well, um, 
in this village, uh, the young people join the resistance because, you know, of course, and it just goes on from there. When you're watching this, you have absolutely no clue that a single bad thing happened in these people's lives up until now. No, oh yeah, remember that one time when Stalin forced half our town to starve to death and then Aunt Sally got caught boiling Uncle Frank's liver to stay alive? No, good times, good times. Well, you know, none of that. Um, and that's kind of the story all the way through. Um, you know, everything about this period, everything that went on, um, you know, in the Ukraine, but also the rest of the Soviet Union, it's just going to get shoved under the rug. You couldn't talk about it. Um, well, with one exception, um, when the Germans did invade in 1941, they made a big deal about the famine. They dug up the mass graves to show everyone. They opened the churches that had been shuttered so memorial services could finally occur. I mean, that's all well and good, but the problem was that when the Germans eventually lost the war, and then people, you know, they were, they'd been talking about this famine. I mean, for a little while there, it was public information, but now... If you talked about it, now that the Soviets are back in charge, guess what? That means that you are, wait for it, a fascist. Obviously, and yes, even today, there are lots and lots of people in Russia, and even here in the West, that will use the same line. Putin announced that Ukraine, uh, even now, is controlled by a secret cabal of Hitler worshippers, that he's just... He's just coming to denazify the country, right? Of course. Bless him. Uh, Russia still denies that any of this, you know, the Holodomor, this death by starvation ever occurred. And if you believe it, dear friend, if you believe anything I've told you today, then you too are a fascist. But again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there are 16 countries around the world today that do recognize this as a intentional genocide. Um, and more and more historians are kind of moving in that direction. The big thing that really changed all of this was the, uh, the release of the, the Soviet archives, um, during the late nineties and early two thousands. Before then, there wasn't a ton of evidence for historians to really sort of sink their teeth into. I mean, you'd have a few writers like, you know, Robert Conquest that would make these claims. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence there, but it was not so easy to substantiate. Of course, that's changed um, in recent years. The people that really haven't gone over to the whole uh, genocide um, idea is the fact that there's not direct evidence written memoranda from Stalin himself directing people to you know, actually perpetuate a lot of these things. There's a ton of evidence that he knew what was going on, kind of indirect evidence, but um, Stalin was very cagey about only allowing things that he wanted to be admitted into posterity, sort of into posterity. So again, it's very sensitive if you have the regime in Moscow sending orders to directly do this and that, and it leads to millions upon millions of deaths. So that's one thing. Well, again, um, if this is the first time you have listen to the show or, or you've been with me for a while uh like i said earlier please leave me a review it's just as easy as could be you just scroll down where the episodes are listed click one of the star buttons preferably the fifth star i know 
Um, not many people do it, but please do not leave today before you at least do that. And if you do have time, I would love it if you could just write me a review. Um, absolutely wonderful. Again, um, check us out on uh, Twitter at Stephen at Savage Continent. Uh, just look up uh, Savage Continent on Facebook. We have a page there too. Um, and just tell people about the show uh, if you found this you know interesting or enjoyable. Um, this wasn't the easiest episode to write because it is a little bit dark. But then again, this is a show called Savage Continent, so I think you kind of know what you're getting into. Well, anyway, that's it for today. So um, I shall see you next time on Savage Continent.